This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. So you just snap your fingers. Baby, I'll come running. Snap, out with earnings yesterday, and uh, surprise, surprise, it didn't stink completely, unlike prior quarters, and uh, stock's up well below uh, uh, what it had traded in only a few months ago, but still trading up massively at 42% right now for the day, trading at 1995. 1995, a great year also. But uh, Jatena Rawal joins us right now from Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, who covers this company for us. Hey, and, Corey. Uh, uh, Jay, what do you see uh, in these uh, in these results? Yeah, so we had, like you said, three quarters of disappointment, and expectations sort of came down after that a little bit, I would say. And you saw fourth quarter, they actually showed some good execution on revenue front, gross margin front, uh, and also some of the steps that they're taking, like fixing Android performance issues, showed uh, a user growth picking up in international markets because of uh, some of the changes that have made. So, uh, user growth wasn't great. I mean, I looked at the number yesterday. I think it was was a thirteen percent overall on a year-over-year basis. Yeah, still way off what it was before the introduction of the competitive products at, at uh, Facebook and in, in notably Instagram Stories. That's true, but that's been the case for a couple of quarters now. And we basically wanted some sort of uh, checks whether the changes that they're talking about, the performance issues, how much it impacted as it showing results. And they showed that in 4Q, it did yield results. So basically what what you, what you it's setting uh, Snap up for, for 2018 is essentially there are a couple of tailwinds over here. So Facebook uh, curbing some content on their news feed, making some changes, that's a tailwind. Tencent's investment that happened, uh, that might open revenue opportunities, or incremental revenue opportunities. This year, you have your pricing, ad pricing declines. They'll moderate because now 90% of ads uh, were served programmatically in fourth quarter. So that overhang is uh, gone. Uh, so basically, you have a few tailwinds over here for. Wait, for I want to back up because I think too. that's such an important point uh, yeah. that you put so poorly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you put it so well. You sound so good. Uh, but the the way they sell ads at Snap was the least efficient way possible. The old style of hiring a bunch of people to ring in some doorbells and knock on some doors and try to convince people to write checks, as opposed to using the methodology used across the internet, which is programmatic ads, where things just sort of there are uh, behind-the-scenes bids happening, and as soon as you log onto a page, an ad pops up, and there are no sort of human interactions going on. Yeah, so um, that's uh, that's that's the main thing about understanding how a company can scale quickly. That's how Facebook and Google can grow uh, their sales faster than the headcount growth, right? So basically, what what's happening over here is one interesting comment that came from them was more than fifty percent or, or or more revenues came from SMBs uh, uh, in the fourth quarter than it came from the top hundred advertisers as tracked by AdAge. So that's telling you that some of these channels that they're opening for SMBs, it's basically driving uh, traffic and helping them scale revenue. So that's a tailwind that could help them this year. So Jitendra, I'm just noticing on the terminal, six 
uh, financial houses have come out and put upgrades on this stock. It's like a little late to the party. Um, but maybe they're changing, really, their thinking, I guess, about it going forward. But having said that, how much of the trade that we're seeing, as Corey mentioned, it's up 42% right now, so pretty much near its highs of the session. How much of that is short covering? People who were pretty negative on this stock and all of a sudden had a scramble. Yeah, it is. Um, a lot of it is, but also, if you actually just look at the trading volume today, I mean, uh, there there is organic buying as well, if you if you t uh, take a break down the numbers but i feel it's 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 uh, more about like you know the company management showing uh, more transparency it's not the transparency that we need it's not there yet but at least more and some execution on back of that so basically gross margin going up to 36% was a big one um, and if we sort of marry all the tailwinds we talked about, you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis expectation of $1.3 billion of revenue expected this year, uh, there's room for a uh, surprise uh, for them to come out with better numbers. So w what might those numbers look like? I mean, we're, we're talking about a company that had terrific revenue growth, 72% revenue growth, reaccelerating on a year-over-year -year basis from a high 60s or low 60s prior quarter. But, uh, uh, you know, when you gap income, actually, they actually had a little bit of profit. Yeah. Uh, the sorry, about, sorry, excuse me. They, had a, they did not have any kind of profit. They had negative $350 million in a right. quarter. So it's still EBITDA negative. So basically, you have to think about it from a uh, sales perspective. Now, it's still early stage in monetization for this company. Do I? Uh, yes. I mean, I have to. You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> um, but but the market would. And if they are able to print the revenue uh, about about the expectation, which I said right now, 1.3, uh, as it as as it stands around the terminal, uh, they have some tailwinds to help them grow faster. I mean, if I look at, at this this business here from a from a free cash flow basis, um, you know. How, they, I guess they've got a like, nice long runway because they raised so much money in the IPO. Yeah, yeah, and also investors have gotten used to it too, right? Like you have uh, four quarters now of um, you know no profit, so the profit story is is long term. The, but the gross margin pickup was very interesting because uh, it shows that they have operating leverage in the business where they are they can scale users and gross margins at the same time when usage engagement actually uh, grew but uh, your gross margins went up so they're able to sort of manage their cost on the cloud services and optimize that better and i guess i'll say really quickly is a cash flow free cash flow a negative 800 million dollars which is it's kind of bad when you burn three hundred million dollars in a year, uh, but they've still got two billion in the bank, uh, largely from that IPO. Yeah, I think they they mentioned about uh, hiring controls next uh, this year, so that might help them come some of that. Oh, uh, I'd like to be at that meeting. That hey guys, it's time to <laughs> do some controls. Hiring control. Yeah, well, I didn't think about that before. Oh, we just let right. you show up, you get a check and a free sandwich. <laughs> Chichendra, you're the best. Chichendra Worrell of Bloomberg Intelligence. Talk about a company that knows a lot about centers, data centers to be exact, and it falls into the REIT category. We were just talking about REITs in our last segment. Cyrus One is a real estate investment trust that invests in data centers, many of it uh, located on the uh, East Coast, Texas, Arizona, Washington State, though, they are across the country. Let's get more. We've talked about this company before. We've talked with the CEO before, but let's bring him in. Gary Wotazic, he is president and chief executive officer at Cyrus One, based in Dallas, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. This is a 
company with about a $5.1 billion market cap. Did I say your last name correctly? You did. <laughs> Pressure you on. can call me Wojo. Okay, Wojo. Well, tell <laughs> us a little bit about your business for those not in the know. Sure. So uh, Cyrus One is a specialized uh, real estate company that focuses on building uh, buildings that hold uh, our customers' computers. Uh, so they're really expensive buildings, uh, but not much different than a typical uh, office building in that customers you know, enter into long-term leases for their computers for How long are those 10 leases? plus years or so. 10 plus years. Yes. So what kind of, who's your clients? Uh, all of the major cloud companies in the world are clients of ours, as well as about 200 uh, of the Fortune 1000. So you say all the major cloud companies, you'll have a Microsoft and an Amazon and a, and a Google and a Rackspace all putting stuff up in your facilities? That's correct. Do they know yep. that? Uh, do they know who they're doing business <laughs> with? No. They do, but I can't say specifically who we're doing business with. I could just tell you that we basically have everyone as a customer. What kind of growth are you guys seeing in your business? Uh, this year, we're over 20%. The guidance 20% give, in terms of revenue? Uh, revenue and slightly faster in, uh, in EBITDA performance. and. You know, that's been pretty much the growth rate we've had over the last decade or so, so we expect it to continue uh, for the next decade. Well, so to that, it strikes me, you know, there, there are, um, as you know, a lot of data centers here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and one of the crucial uh, uh, location uh, drivers is being close to where fiber comes from across the ocean and where the major hubs are for the Internet. What is the competitive environment like to get space? I mean, there's a big data center uh, here, here, right here in San Francisco, in downtown San Francisco, because that's where some fiber hits, and they've got a chance to get some higher speeds there. But that's getting to be really expensive real estate, and I wonder how many of those opportunities are when you need to have, where you need to have them. Yeah, it's uh, fiber is really important to a data center because uh, the data that sits in the facility is basically useless if customers can't access it and manipulate it. So it's really critical to have it. But um, the scale of the business is growing such that most carriers are are providing fiber connectivity pretty much wherever you stand up a data center. So if you're looking at building a 100 acre campus and you know with several million of square feet, there's lots of opportunities for a lot of carriers to provide connectivity to it. So they'll bring they'll bring connectivity to uh, to those facilities. I'm curious too about okay, so we know like Amazon needs big data right. centers. We know a lot of folks do, um, but who where are you seeing kind of some new interesting trends? in terms of industries who are saying, wait, I need more data center capabilities and new places to house stuff? Uh, every single industry out there is basically being challenged with data growth, right? And the amount of data that exists in the world is doubling every every 18 months. So the yeah. logistics associated with that are tremendous. But a big strain on these companies trying to manage it. So every single industry that you can think of, uh, and not even the traditional technology companies, you know, your consumer goods companies, your industrial manufacturing companies, any of those are all basically migrating their business models to a digital format. Is there and any all that needs there, to be stored in a data center. Is there any industry, though, that has recently all of a sudden kind of ramped up? Uh, we're seeing a big pickup in healthcare over the last uh, year, and we expect that's going to continue. And that's both on the insurance side as well as some of the, the drug development efforts as well. Um, and we see that continuing. Um, it's, it, so, all right, so we've got this move towards the cloud, but that's not especially new, right? We've been seeing that for, uh, one could argue, a decade, and it's hitting more industries. Are there certain industries that are late to this that are just getting involved? Well, the, the, um, the, the cloud is still relatively new. I mean, from a revenue perspective, maybe it's $60 billion out of a trillion-dollar annual spend, so it's still relatively small. Mm -hmm. uh, they expect that's going to get up to about $500 million market. So the opportunity for growth is, is tremendous, and I think, you know, in addition to what you're seeing on the cloud side is artificial intelligence is projected to grow even even bigger than that. What do you think, Gary, in terms of rental rates? 
Uh, pretty it, m- it, like, do these companies actually buy the facilities or do they rent it? Like, how does it work? No, no, they rent it. No different than uh, a, a traditional uh, equity office property, right? Um, you know, customers take you know space for five to ten year periods with you know typical two to three percent lease bumps, just like a regular uh, lease mm-hmm. that you'd have in an office building. But the available space is there. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you guys uh, generally, you know, also paying a, a kind of decent uh, um, a dividend off that, right? Three point oh two percent right now. Um, what are the, th- the implications of the new tax law as it relates to structuring your business as a REIT? Um, not really, not really much of an impact to uh, to us. But the the one thing I would point out though is that the three percent on an after tax basis is really attractive as well. So for those retail investors, most of the uh, for the last couple of years, actually one hundred percent of the dividend that we've returned was been return of capital. So there's really no income tax on it. So on an after tax yield basis, it's very attractive. So in terms of right now, I think the bulk of your revenues and your business is in the United States, correct? That's correct. You're recently moved into Europe. Yeah, we in, in the last uh, quarter, we did an, uh, an investment and, and a partnership with a Chinese data center company called GDS. They're the fastest growing company in China, and they're selling predominantly to the Chinese cloud companies. So we took an investment in them and doubled that uh, since you know in the last three or four months. We're looking at growing their business, helping their customers expand in the U.S., and vice versa. And then right before Christmas, we announced an acquisition called uh, Zinium. Uh, they have two facilities in London and Frankfurt, and that's going to give us the opportunity to expand throughout Europe. So we'll follow up with additional opportunities over the course of 18 and 19 as we build out a uh, European platform. Where do you see your biggest markets being ultimately? Uh, well, in, in Europe, we're going to be – so London and Frankfurt are the two largest. We have some opportunities right now. Not just gonna, in Europe, but globally. Where oh, do you it's, see – Basically, all the major cities around the world, You know, the major GDPs uh, of the world and those cities within those really where – all the data center needs are going to go to. Who's your competition? Uh, in, Who do you look at as competition the most? Uh, well, in Predominantly, we're selling against the alternative of people trying to build it themselves. Right. So when we think about the cloud companies, we're trying to convince them to never invest a lot of capital in building another data center themselves. So we really look at our counterparts there, our customers, as the biggest competition. From um, you know, from a you know competitive perspective, the other companies in the industry uh, that we compete against on a public basis is uh, Equinix, Digital Realty, are uh, the two larger ones. Right. So and and to that. Uh, there are more and more of these uh, digital REITs. Uh, what's a what's a bad one look like? Like, what are the finances of, of a company that's maybe making some short term decisions or, you know, uh, decisions you're trying to not screw up? Yeah. But you could say, boy, this could might make things look yeah. good in the short term, but it's we're going to pay for it down the line. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and from a public company perspective, I can tell you that everyone is operating um, with a really strong balance sheet. You know, minimal amounts of leverage. Uh, really attractive return. So, so over leverage right would be one thing to look for. Yeah, yeah. If you were if you were over leveraged, that would definitely be a concern. What worries you? What keeps you up at night? Um, if we're going to be able to keep up with the pace of growth, we've been building at at a tremendous pace over the last couple of years, and and trying to get additional resources on the team so we can keep up with that growth. And now internationally is really going to push us further. So you're talking internally personnel. That's right. Are you having mm-hmm. to pay up for them um, more and more. Like I, I'm curious about the the labor market environment. We, if they're I listening mean, now, they should ask for yeah, a raise. Right? Yeah, well, good people are always hard to find, so we we never stop looking. So uh, once we find them, you know, they generally enjoy working for us. I really hope Bill Studemaker isn't Studemaker is not doing uh, the robot right now, but he is the CIO at Robo Global. 
an ETF whose ticker is easy to remember, R-O-B-O, Robo, the focus on robotics and automation. Uh, Bill, always a pleasure. Talk to me. uh, Give us sort of the 30,000-foot view. What are you trying to do with this um, ETF? What what, uh, investment or business trend are you trying to replicate? Well, Corey, thanks for having me. Uh, listen, from our vantage point, we just live in a time that couldn't be more excited to be an investor, particularly uh, in what we call RAY, which is robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence. Um, robotics, AI, and machine learning have put us on the cusp of a new automation age, and it's really heralding in uh, a new era breakthrough innovation opportunity. And so we put together an index specifically to, to capitalize uh, on this trend which we believe were really not even in the first inning of the baseball game, but the players are actually in the locker room, you know, putting their shoes on. Um, so we create an index that invests across the entire value chain of technologies and applications. And interesting enough, many of these technologies don't exist in the U.S. Forty uh, percent of our index is in the U.S., but 60 percent of it is international. Again, not by design. This happens to be where this technology exists. So if investors want to participate in this market, really capture the trend, um, they need to be very global. And that's what we try to accomplish. How do you pick and choose among the players that are out there? Uh, well, we're looking for the companies that simplistically have... Wait, are you buying into his baseball metaphor, really? The players that are out there? Is that what you're doing? All right, all right, all right. <laughs> you're going with baseball. We're no, in the I'm locker curious. room. we got our cleats. All right, all right. I'm curious, though, what metrics you check into. Yeah. Or check well, out. The, mo- the most important the most important metric for us is looking at the revenue uh, threshold. So we're looking for the companies that have the highest revenue threshold that uh, corresponds directly to robotics, automation, AI. So think about this. I mean, we're going the gold rush, and these are the the picks and the shovels. These are the technologies that that companies are buying. Um, not companies, for example, like uh, you know Amazon that one would think is robotic or or automation. They really are a consumer uh, retailer at heart. Um, they just so happen to use these technologies better than others to um, enable their business. So I want to make that distinction. So we're looking at companies that furthermore um, have a technological moat around their business. Um, and those are kind of the two most you know valuable criteria that, that, that we look at. We then um, that have minimum liquidity uh, and exchange trade eligibility filters that we apply. But that's you know sort of the, the, the lens that we look look through and and I guess not only are we kind of fortunate I think to have identified this trend before you know Wall Street did because we actually created this index uh, five years ago uh, but we actually enlisted some of the world's leading robotic thought leaders uh, and entrepreneurs on, on our team we actually have uh, six PhDs on our team that help us you know, advise us on the technologies and where the world's going. Um, and this is not something right now that AI can do. You need to really kind of understand this. And I think this gives us, um, you know, a competitive advantage. Uh, so the, the, the robo uh, ETF up a very impressive 39 percent in the last year. But you're also seeing a lot of volume. In the last two days, you got over two million shares. Busy days, to be sure. But regularly doing, you know, well over 800,000 uh, shares trading on a given day. It seems to me that's one of the great tricks with these ETFs. There are a lot of them out there, and not a lot of them trade. How'd you get there? Well, yeah, I, I guess you know what's what, Corey. What's the most important thing about an ETF? Certainly, you have to get to sort of a some critical capacity. But um, although people do look at the, the the daily liquidity, if you will, the most important thing is is uh, the liquidity of the underlying basket. So interesting enough, our index actually has a median market cap of five billion dollars. So 
this is a really liquid uh, index. And, and does that mean people trade it more just because they're trading it against? I mean, is it used as a trading vehicle where someone's saying this index is a little bit more long this stock or, or the S&P 500 so I can use this index against that or that kind of thing? No, I don't think so. I mean, we don't really have, you know, index that we compare ourselves against because we actually created the first and only robotics automation AI index. So um, I think the people that are behind this are really long-term investors that recognize, you know, where the world's going. And they're understanding now, Corey, that these technologies, you know, are not niches. They're really foundational technologies that are being applied to all industries, all markets. It's happening now. With the exception of, of industrial manufacturing, consumer electronics, which is probably around 40% penetrated, think about it. Every other segment of the economy, it's in its nascent beginning. So when you're looking out and where the world's going in the next three to five years, I think people are going to be blown away by the types of innovations that, that are occurring. Um, and so investors here are, are really trying to get exposure to this theme. And I think we try to do this in a very tactical fashion to get the exposures, but without taking concentrated bets. We, we recognize there's going to be a lot of disruption. Uh, there's a lot of big movers in our index. Actually, last year, the index was up around 47%. I believe we had uh, over a dozen companies that were up over 100%. And uh, it's hard to pick the obvious winners and losers. So we, we only have two position weights. We either have basically what's called a peer play. We call it a bellwether. It has a 2% weighting. And it was just 40% of our portfolio, and a non-bellwether uh, is 60% of the portfolio, and it has a 1% weight. So we were balanced quarterly to kind of smooth out the ride because right. we recognize that there will be some bumps along the way, like we're seeing now. But Bill, uh, uh, we, Bill, we got to jump. Uh, but people got to check this thing out. Robo Global, very interesting ETF tickers. R O B O. He's Bill Studebaker, a uh, uh, longtime investor around here. Glad to have your input. This next company knows an awful lot about photographs. We're going to talk to uh, the CEO of Shutterfly. He's Christopher North, based in Redwood City, California. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. That stock already up 45% this year, and the company's been pretty busy. So let's find out uh, a little bit more about strategy. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, girl. Tell us a little bit about what's been going on for you guys. You have There's been a lot of investor enthusiasm uh, about your name and about what you guys are doing. You've done an acquisition. You say... As we, before we got going, it's really transformational for you guys. Absolutely, I think to understand how important the acquisition is for us, you've got to you've got to rewind a little bit. You know, over the last year, we've really undertaken a major transformation of Shutterfly. Um, over the course of the year, we simplified our consumer business, refocusing all of our energy on our two leading brands, on Shutterfly and our Tiny Prince Premium Cards and Stationery brand. We brought all the customers from those brands onto a single technical platform, Shutterfly.com, for the first time. It's almost like doing seven years of post-merger integration all in one year. Yeah. And, uh, and the proof was in the pudding. We delivered an amazing Q4 for our, for our customers and for our investors. Um, we saw our customers moving into mobile rapidly, doubling our mobile app revenues year over year. Uh, we How saw, much of your business is mobile at this so point? We did, uh, so 21% of our Q4 revenues were and, in were in mobile overall. And growing? And growing very rapidly. That's almost up more than 400 basis points year over year. People just love to do it. It's the ease. And that's that's been one of the major themes well, of their our phone, business. That's where the pictures are, right? It's on their phone. That's yeah. exactly Exactly right. So the phone is not only your primary camera, it's the primary place you access your pictures. And through what our app does is it makes creating 
and purchasing a personalized product so much simpler. So this has all been part of the transformation of Shutterfly, refocusing the business on our core brands, getting everything onto an updated technical platform, managing that transition for mobile. That led to really an overperformance for us in our key holiday period in What Q4. do most of your customers, Where's what, what is the thing that they most do, most buy from you guys? Yeah, so our number one product category is cards and stationery, and that is a big holiday purchase. And what we you saw, think? what we saw, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What we saw over um, the holidays this year is, you know, the time-honored tradition of exchanging holiday cards is not only going strong, but it's been updated. We saw the pe we saw people purchasing on mobile. We saw people even using our machine learning based automated product creation, where we're suggesting pre-created holiday cards and gifting products based on their best photos, and making it just one or two clicks away from making that purchase. And you I know, can't job, tell you how many uh, tiny pr tiny prints uh, cards I got uh, this year. But I uh, uh, I also received a lot of emails uh, from your fabulous marketing team. Yes. Great job they're doing. Yeah, no, and and we're thrilled to see that your CMO is, uh, ought to get a raise. Uh, I think I, I think you know our CMO pretty well. From Full memories, disclosure: uh, <laughs> my daughter is one of my daughter's best friends. His father is the CMO of the company. And maybe that's why I'm inundated by, by the emails. But uh, but I did see a lot of, and I wonder sort of what level of promotional activity, you know, what your cost of customer acquisition is, and how that's changed over the last year or two. You know, it's a it's a great question. It's one of the places we because John won't tell me. Yeah, I can put good, you on the spot. Good. He's, doing, He's tried. John. Boyd Boris, our CMO, doing his job. Thanks, John. Uh, you know, that has been one of the biggest changes in our business over the last couple of years, really in two ways. First of all, our decision to simplify down to just our two key brands, which are the leading brands in this industry, Shutterfly and Tiny Prince, was based in part on the fact that we had this broad portfolio of brands, but we had two brands that really resonated with customers and enjoyed that brand recognition that makes it easier to acquire our customers. Shutterfly is obviously the big brand. Tiny Prince really differentiated as a premium design-led cards and stationery brand. By bringing them together on one platform, we actually were able to hold our revenues flat in a major transitional year where we were shutting down brands and websites to simplify the business while reducing our marketing expense by 20%. The second big change for us in customer acquisition has been mobile. Mobile, our mobile app is a game changer because we are able to acquire customers for a fraction of the cost to our mobile app as we are to our website. And then we see they very rapidly become as engaged with the mobile app and even have higher retention in the mobile app than they do on our website. Because you see, you know, you, when you look at, the, for example, Google's numbers, you see the cost per click has been going down for quite a while as people shift from desktop to mobile, as ads shift from desktop to mobile. So you're, that's actually to your advantage. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're Customer acquisition costs have gone down. Um, when you look at, at how it's weighted between mobile and web, that the higher mix of mobile is bringing down the customer acquisition cost. So we actually can acquire a customer to our mobile app for a fraction of the cost of the web, and we get a higher ROI from that customer because of the lower marketing expense. So, so really the big themes for us over the last year have been refocusing the business on our best brands, um, getting everything onto an updated technical platform, and the transition to mobile. And that all flowed through to this great Q4. What's, can, let me ask you about something, though, because I think it was the end of January, there was a story I was just reading on the Bloomberg that the S&P saying that it might cut your credit rating as a result of the acquisition of LifeTouch. What was what will that do, if anything, to some of either your borrowing costs, or yeah. what will that do potentially? Yeah, I mean, actually, the reason I'm in town today, besides to talk to you guys, is to meet with the rating agencies. This is a standard process you go through. Um, so, for context, we are acquiring LifeTouch, which I know we're going to come on and talk about in a second, uh, um, in an all-cash deal. Um, and the two companies' combined balance sheets and cash flow are so strong, and the, as well as the synergies from this deal 
deal, they were able to finance that entirely um, in cash. But that does mean going and placing $825 million of debt. Um, it's obligatory then you go back to the rating agencies. They will technically put you on watch until they've re-reviewed it. Um, we so had you're those, not worried? Uh, no, I think we feel really good. We have we have such a strong financial position that we feel great about our ability to place that debt. This has been fun. We've got 20 seconds yep. left. So LifeTouch, so what does Life it Touch. mean for you guys? LifeTouch is a game-changing acquisition for the company. LifeTouch, for those of you who don't know it, is the leader in school photography in the U.S. When you get that form in your kid's backpack when they come home from school to buy school portraits, that's LifeTouch. They're in 50,000 schools. They photograph 25 million customers a year. By bringing these two companies together who have the shared mission of helping, customer, of helping customers capture, preserve, and share the most important moments of their family's life, we're going to almost double our profit delivery over the next three years. It's also steady revenue. Kids in school who steady. doesn't buy the school photos. Chris North, thank you so much. Thank you. Fun talking to you. Chief Executive Officer at Shutterfly based in Redwood City, California in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Robert Luna taking us to the closing bell on this Wednesday. He is CEO and Chief Investment Strategist at SureVest Wealth Management, based in Newport Beach, California, back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York City. Nice to have you back with us. Great to be here, Carol. Fun week, huh? Been an exciting ride. So tell us about the ride this week for your investors. And I'm just curious what kind of phone calls have Fun? you been getting. I guess <laughs> we're just taking for, for right. we're just assuming you weren't short the VIX. <laughs> Was not short the and, VIX. And not carried out like so many, so many others, billions of dollars were. I guess I guess that's the story, right, we hear. So, you know, I think this is really the type of market that really, you know, bodes to, to understand why the individual investors should not be trying to time this market. You have this big crash that comes on Friday, followed up by Monday. And, you know, not that I'm prophetic, but I pretty much knew that was going to happen, right? Because, you know, us in the financial services industry, we're watching this on a day-to-day basis. But come Saturday, the average retail investor is seeing the headlines in the Los Angeles Times, New York Times, stock market crash. The first thing that they're going to do is place those market orders to sell on open on Monday. So we got that big swish down on Monday. And, and that's the problem, right, is the average investor bailed out on Monday. Now they're trying to think, how do I get back into this market? So it's those types of timing mistakes that are really what's hurt Pert's performance for these guys over the long term. So you've been anticipating this kind of a pullback. It, we have. And, you know, we've been a little bit early anticipating. We've really been trying to prepare our investors for the last three months. It's just because of the, the, the lack of volatility that we experienced for the previous year. We knew we were overdue for this. What kind of preparation have you been doing for those investors? And what have you done to somebody who maybe a week ago came to you and said, I've got a ton of money to invest. I want to get in on this thing. What did you say? Yeah. So that's that's a great point, Carol. So we have raised a little bit of cash in our portfolio. Or did you say just hold it in cash for a while? <laughs> well, you know, investors that have been fully invested, existing clients with us that have been wanting to add more more into the market were quite honestly after the big run unfortunately a lot of investors deciding maybe my risk tolerance is a little bit more aggressive now and I want to take that to the next level we've been telling them to wait for a pullback because at our in our view the stock market in the US at least has been fully valued and there really hasn't been that opportunity to overweight US equities or add more money into this market so where did you do kind wait, of wait, so what? fully valued in what sense I mean like I, I, we, I have this argument uh, quite often on the show when someone says 
things are undervalued, overvalued. I'm like, well, pick a valuation. What, what are you looking at that says it is fully valued? Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at the S&P historically, we're trading at about fair valuations, 19 to 20. Now, obviously, there's some you know, consideration you can give to the 10-year Treasury. That being low maybe bodes well for a, high, you know, a higher anticipated growth rate. But all in all, I think any metric that you take a look at it, Corey, you really couldn't say that this market was cheap by any means. So, you know, looking at that and not being, you know, as opportunistic investors looking to buy good companies at a discount, there really hasn't been much of that outside of maybe the financial sector. What happens from here? And I'm just curious if you're telling investors to kind of be patient for a while longer. Yeah. Yeah. So from here, you know, basically coming into this correction, we've been against our benchmarks for our portfolio underweight about 20% on the U.S. markets. Um, within that point, we've been overweighting the financials. But really, we've shifted over the last year a lot more money overseas because our view is those markets are cheaper. The demographics, if you look at countries like Asia, uh, I'm sorry, India, mm -hmm. are much more compelling. So we think that the next leg of the growth for this global stock market rally is going to be coming outside of the U.S. borders. You've been underweight financials. No, we've been, we've been equal or weight financials. Equal I'm sorry, we've been underweight U.S. equities in general. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of being opportunistic and looking for opportunities like this, the financials are one sector that we did want to go overweight. So really the only thing we've been doing during this pullback for our clients is looking at that financial ex uh, exposure. So when you see things like Wells Fargo, mm -hmm. and because today you have, you know, ETFs that trade, you know, sectors like commodities, once that big sell-off came on the ETF sector, we stepped in and made some purchases in the financial services sector because we think really that's the industry that's best set to really advance in this market going forward. Why? Because of higher rates? Because of an economy, a global economy? What? Well, I think it's all. And that's the great thing is that everything you look at, if you look at regulations, regulatory environments coming down, that's very, very compelling for financials. If you look at net interest margins, so the spread between what they're able to lend out mm -hmm. and what they receive, that's, that's increasing. The economy, obviously, when you're towards full employment, that means that the credit worthiness of the borrow is going to be much higher. So, And obviously, valuations are below what their norm is, below the market. So it's just, to us, it's a very good opportunity to invest in a sector like the financial sector. So all right, I get how you pick a, how you pick the sector now. Yep. How do you pick the stocks within the sector? Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I think this is one of those points where you know we're, we're neither you know indexers or active managers. We really look for where the opportunity is. So I think you know if you're looking at the U.S. stock market in general and you want to look at large cap stocks, I think with the S&P at 20, you probably pick individual names at this point. But in terms of the financials, because of the fact that we don't want to miss this big rally, we're not trying to pick one or two banks, because you may wind up picking something like a Wells Fargo. We're really looking to buy the sector in general, and particularly we like, in particular, we like um, the regional bank exposure through the ETF KBE. Interesting. That's a, it's, I presume that's a, that's a key uh, uh, product. It's a spider, spider, right? Yeah. Spider ETF, right. Yeah, spider Correct. ETF. Correct. Uh, where don't you want to be right now? Yeah, so I don't think you want to be in places that are the bond proxies, if you will. So some of the consumer staples like a PepsiCo, um, the utility companies, the telecom, because really these are the places that people have hit out for income that have become overvalued. And when you Someone talk, Someone said this on the show yesterday that 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 the, that stocks uh, people are buying stocks for yield and and bonds for a return, but that's changing. Or for capital gains was actually the phrase I said on our show. Yeah, that that that's absolutely correct. And I mean, so when you, when you look at some of the valuations on these stocks that are you know the consumer staples that are yielding two point five, two point six percent at twenty two times forward earnings, well, if there's not any growth and you now have a three percent tenure, that story has kind of been disrupted a bit. Um, nice to talk with you again. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Carol. Yeah, Robert Luna, he's chief executive officer, chief investment strategist at Surevest Wealth Management, based in Newport Beach, California, in our Bloomberg eleven three zero studio. 
Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for a look at some of your winners and losers, movers and shakers, on this Wednesday afternoon. Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. Charlie Pellet, though, uh, mentioning that 21st Century Fox, their earnings just crossing the Bloomberg as we speak. Second quarter just at EPS. Let's go there once again. Second quarter just at EPS. Continuing operations, 42 cents a share. That's four pennies better than what Wall Street was forecasting. Second quarter revenue, $8.04 billion. That, too, is a beat uh, of $7.95 billion. That was the analyst. Uh, Fox seeing the Disney deal closing about 12 to 18 months from December 13, 2017, so from the end of uh, last year. Second quarter cable networking programming, always important when we look at Fox. Revenue, $4.41 billion. The estimate was for $4.36 billion. So that, too, is a little bit of a beat. Quick check on what the stock is doing in the after hours. Looks like it is unchanged, Corey, as we speak, so not too much market reaction. But, of course, We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, I'm waiting for earnings from a lot of companies right now, not yeah. least of which Tesla. But uh, I want to mention shares of Twitter were up quite a bit today, uh, uh, up 6.6% on the day, ahead of earnings tomorrow morning. Um, uh, uh, Twitter uh, unusually reports in the morning. Twitter has missed earnings results in uh, three of the last, if I look here, seven quarters, which ain't good. Uh, nonetheless, uh, that just shows you what the estimates are unable to put a handle to this. Uh, nonetheless, estimates have been coming up. Uh, uh, recommendations for the stock have been improving uh, and uh, or increasing, I should say. And uh, and furthermore, uh, the stock has been up. It's up over 45% in the last uh, 52 weeks, uh, but 7% of that today uh, with the expectation, I guess, that earnings are going to be good. We shall see in short order. Uh, the expectation is, however, that revenues will decline by 4% in a year-over-year uh, basis, and that's considered good given what we've seen from this company in the past, uh, and that there might actually be a small profit tomorrow on an EPS level, on a gap EPS level, for the first time ever, they might actually have a $15 million profit. That's the expectation on Wall Street. We'll see if they meet that expectation tomorrow morning. I want to mention, too, one name, iRobot, out with its uh, latest results, too. Fourth quarter EPS of $0.16 cents a share. Fourth quarter revenue of $326.9 million. That compares with an estimate of $318.8 million. Uh, looking for 2018 to 2020 revenue growth of about 20%. What's interesting, though, that stock is tanking big yeah, time. Yeah, that's not good down about 16%. So it might have something to do with the company's outlook. I mention it because uh, one of our guests we talked to at Robo Global, uh, Bill Studebaker, uh, this is, I think, their number one holding when it comes to the robotic uh, universe. So again, this stock has had a pretty good run uh, this year, Corey, but uh, uh, it's up about 15% so far in 2018. But uh, again, it's down about that much yeah, the uh, in the after hours. Yeah, the expectation is, is well below the consensus. And you've also had a lot of insider selling at this stock mm -hmm. and their concerns about the way they're recognizing revenue uh, and big competition coming for those little Roombas uh, from other companies in yeah. China uh, and on the, on the low end and on the high end Dyson has got a competitive product now with iRobot. Uh, the short interest on the stock, let me see just because I know some people who are short the stock, but 24% uh, of the float is short, which is a reasonably high short interest for a name like this. Um, as I said, insiders uh, may have been uh, keying off on that by uh, selling some shares. 
Uh, looks like, hmm, I'm looking for Twitter because I'm looking, here it comes, Tesla coming out, not Twitter, Tesla. I was looking for it on Twitter, but here it is crossing the Bloomberg terminal, uh, talking about uh, its latest quarterly results. And let's go through uh, some of the numbers. As for the fourth quarter adjusted loss, uh, it is three dollars four cents a share. The estimated loss was for three twenty, so a little bit of a smaller loss. Reaffirming its forecast for the Model Three second quarter and production rate. This is always key, right, Corey? We see them often moving those uh, production numbers. Also, it says it sees 2018 revenue growth significantly e exceeding 2017. And let me just see what Tesla's doing. 2017 is, revenue, revenue growth, just by comparison, was about uh, 70%, a little less than 65%. Stocks up 2.4% in the after hours. Fourth quarter non-GAAP automotive gross margin, 13.8%. Estimate was for about a full percentage point higher than that, 14.8%. And yeah, their yeah, their margins are interesting. Yeah. They always talk about their what? production target by the end of the quarter, <laughs> like if that actually recognizes itself in the number of cars actually sold. Uh, automotive revenues in the quarter of two point seven billion dollars. Um, uh, if you take out also interesting, they got a lot of money from credits for making the cars tax credits. They keep saying those tax credits are going to go away, but uh, about uh, six percent of the gross margin, five percent of the gross margin for the company was SPC and uh, what they call zero emission vehicle credits, um, uh, making their margins look a lot better than they were otherwise. Right. And it's, what is it when they sell? Is it 100,000 vehicles or something like that, that the tax credit starts to go away? They've never just, I mean, they've... they've no, it's not them. I thought it's the federal bill, the, the law in terms of no, the tax No, they, but they get a lot of state credits too, and they're not really, they won't say yeah. what they're getting and where they're getting them from. Right. Um, and they, it's... I've spent a lot of time trying to figure this stuff out. Okay. Um, there's been a lot of criticism in the state of California because they're getting a lot of tax. They were getting a lot of tax credits, and there was there was actually a bill introduced to to put an end to that. That this was uh, subsidizing the cars for millionaires, um, uh, and that, that it wasn't you know getting, it. doing what the bill initially intended. All right, we've got shares of Tesla down more than one percent in the after hours. As for the VIX on this Wednesday, down almost twelve percent, down three point five points. The VIX closing at twenty six point forty nine. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave Wilson, he's here with his stock of the day. Dave, what do you got? I've got Cavco Industries, and they're a company that specializes in factory-built housing. Uh, they were spun off about 15 years ago by the home builder Centax. Ticker is CVCO. Now, Cavco surged more than ninefold since U.S. stocks began a bull market in March 2009. Even so, Wall Street has largely overlooked the company. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows there were just two analysts uh, covering Cavco at the moment. They both recommend buying the stock, and Cavco provided a reason to follow their advice when fiscal third quarter results came out late yesterday. Earnings per share beat estimates, and there are only two of them, by more than 80%. Sales surpassed one estimate by 4.4%. Now, Cavco said in a statement that order rates rose during the holiday months, which tend to be slower. Rising was the order of the day for the company's shares. They set a record and route to a gain of 14%, the biggest since October 2015. This stock has been on quite a tear, going all the way back uh, to the end of 2011, up 53% last year. So interesting name, Dave. Dave Wilson with his stock of the day. Ticker is CVCO. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.